Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today. While we both sip a tea, or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic, it's a chance for those affected by lockdown, feeling unsettled, the opportunity to chat. Because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Saturday, June the 20th, 2020, and my guest today, my debut guest, is internationally acclaimed theatre producer Michael Rose. Michael graduated from what was King Alfred's College, now known as Winchester University, with a degree in English and Drama. His first job was as an English and Drama teacher... He first started producing shows in 1984 and formed a production company with David Morgan in 1987. Since then, he's produced over 75 productions worldwide, including, and here's just a few, Jesus Christ Superstar, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Once the Musical, Footloose, The Boyfriend, The Wizard of Oz, Elf the Musical, White Christmas, Big the Musical... Plays including Driving Miss Daisy, Strangers on a Train, A Steady Rain, Chariots of Fire and many, many pantomimes including Cinderella, Aladdin, Snow White and Beauty and the Beast. Now that list is by no means exhaustive. Michael's latest show, Sleepless the Musical, was in production when lockdown happened and is currently on hold. More on that in our conversation. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Michael Rose. Hello! Hello, with that introduction, I, I should have a long white beard and a stick. <laughs> we'll call you Gandalf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or past it, whatever you choose. No, not at all. How are you today? I'm good. The sun is out. I've got to say the weather during lockdown has been like no other year. It's generally been... A bit of a lifesaver, I think, for everybody. Hasn't it? Michael, I've got to ask you, as we begin, what drink have you got in hand today? I have, and I shake. Can you hear, can you hear my... I can. Can you hear my... my uh, I was going to say icebergs. <laughs> my ice. This is a gin and tonic uh, with cucumber. Oh, lovely. Well, I've got the same. I've got a non-alcoholic Cedars gin um, and tonic. So Cheers. Cheers. When I was thinking about who to chat to first, it occurred to me that actually, I don't know how you got to where you are today. Did you know when you were at uni, this was what you wanted to do? I knew when I was a child, because I can remember so clearly uh, the teacher at, I guess, junior school saying to each of us, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I knew that I was going to be a problem as uh, everyone else was saying nurse or teacher or doctor or fireman. No, no, I came up with film star (laughs) as a young child. I was going to be a film star. Now, why on earth I chose film star? Because I'm not exactly blessed with the greatest of looks in the world, but it just seemed to me as a child like entertaining people uh, seemed to be a, a, a fun and glamorous thing to do. And I was always prancing around the rooms as a child, uh, showing off in front of my mother and father. Um, so it seemed a, a natural a natural tra- trajectory to go from uh, 
from child to film star. Um, that didn't happen, obviously. And uh, I promised my parents, I always wanted to go into show business, so that was pretty obvious. But I always promised my parents that, uh, to want of a, a better phrase, uh, to get a, a proper job. So that's why I did my degree at uh, what is now known as, you say, Winchester University. Snap. And yeah, yeah. and uh, it sounds much posh. It's so posh, doesn't it? Um, like I had some sort of education. And, uh, and then went and did a postgrad uh, certificate in education. And then I taught for a year um, at a school in Cheriton Road in Winchester. And I loved every minute of it. I was only there for a year. Uh, in uh, as an English drama teacher and they didn't actually have a drama department and at the end of the first year after I'd presented with the kids three full school productions uh, in the in the big assembly hall there or on stage uh, at the school uh, the headmaster Mr Jenner I think uh, asked me, because uh, I gave my resignation in at the end of the year, because I did my qualifying year, and thought, well, that's me, off to the, you know, the streets paved in gold up in London, and uh, off to be a film star, <laughs> as I would have liked to have been as a child, obviously. And I decided I wanted to go into show business, and uh, he, he tried to persuade me to stay by, and it was very tempting, I hasten to add, uh, in those days by offering me a jump from what was grade one, because it was my first year as a teacher, grade one teacher, to either grade three or grade four. I think it must have been grade three. Uh, and my own department. In fact, they were going to create a department for me. And boy, that was extraordinarily generous and a huge leap of faith on his part. Um, and I turned him down. <laughs> so um, I, I went off into the world of, of um, show business, but I've never really, I mean, I did some separate acting jobs uh, employed by somebody else, but I, I kind of short-circuited the process and, and, and began a, a production company with uh, a, a friend from college and a, and a lecturer from college a lady called Sally Williams and her daughter, Billy. And we, we auditioned people. And not only did we do the administration and booking of the shows around in the art centers that used to exist, or maybe still exist in, in Hampshire, um, we performed in it as well. So I got the best, best of both worlds because I'm a terrible control freak, um, <laughs> as you probably know. And so it was inevitable. Um, I started to back off from uh, the uh, acting side of things. And I love to sing. We, I was in musicals and as well as plays. Um, uh, it was inevitable I would uh, want to take total control. And so uh, a, a few years after that, um, I, I started a, a separate production company under my own name. Um, and I went into partnership uh, with David Morgan because the girls uh, of what was known as Four Four Time Productions, and it was based at the Art Centre in New Milton. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I said, well, we've got to move forward. I think we need to expand. We need to do bigger productions. 
And I think they found that a little bit overwhelming. Um, and, I, and I appreciate that. But I was, I was young and hungry and... Ambitious. And ambitious, I guess so. All the things I'm not now. I left and set up with uh, David and um, our first production on what would be known as a number one uh, scale tour was Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't in that, thank goodness, but uh, David Morgan, uh, who used to be known as David Morgan Young and is now known as Morgan Young, um, uh, was choreographer and indeed uh, was one of the leading roles in it. I think he played Bobby Van Heusen. And I would stay at uh, the office, which was in his attic, uh, in Glenville Road in Watford, and I would administrate everything. Uh, I think we directed the second production, the second tour of uh, The Boyfriend. Um, and indeed, for, for years after that, when we got offered the contract at what was known as Pool Arts Centre and is now... Um, the Lighthouse. Me, Lighthouse, that's right, Lighthouse. It sounds like some sort of sanctuary. Um, but we, we, had, we had some very lovely years there. And it was a great training ground for, you know, doing the Christmas shows, which got bigger and more spectacular and more ambitious. Um, and indeed ended up leading to us meeting uh, Shireen because we took on the Christmas contract at the Mayflower Theatre in Southampton, courtesy of Dennis Hall. Um, for about seven years. And we premiered uh, some really big productions there, at White Christmas, the Broadway production of White Christmas, which ultimately ended up going into the West End, the Mayflower in Southampton, and in conjunction with the Plymouth Theatre Royal, uh, with which we've done many partnerships uh, over the decades. Uh, which are spanning, we're into our fourth decade. Gosh. I, I've been doing this for 35 years now. Michael, um, you had great vision, didn't you? Would you say you were a risk taker? Because did you come from a showbiz family? No, no, not at all. In fact, my mum used to be uh, a school secretary at, at the secondary school that I went to in Sidcup in Kent. And I remember the, the teachers were doing a... Uh, a Christmas show uh, as part of a, a thing for the school. And my mother had to sing, uh, it, was the, it was the 12 days of Christmas, my mother had to sing five secretaries typing. That was her line. And I can remember in the rehearsal, it got to her line and she mouthed the words and had no idea that no sound came out whatsoever <laughs> because she was so nervous. Uh, and my father was a, was a sales rat rep for a, a, an American chemical company. Um, so they had no connections whatsoever to show business. Um, so I, you, I think... You carved your own route, didn't you? And, and I think um, that must have been quite scary at times. It was, it was, <laughs> it was quite poverty-stricken at times, I know that. <laughs> um, you know, anybody starting off in, in show business, whether it's... Uh, you know, as, as an actor or a technician, um, director or creative person, 
yeah, you've really got to slum it a while, I think. Right. You know, the, you you live from hand to mouth. And as you well know, yeah. Cherie. I think there's know. a misconception, isn't there, that, uh, you know, the streets will be lined with gold in showbiz land. Absolutely not. It can be. It absolutely can be. But you've got you've got to maintain that that goal, that that direction. Um, I guess I was just stubborn and just kept going, um, thinking that maybe one day we'd we'd make it um, big and perhaps have a uh, maybe have a show in the West End one time. Um, and more uh, than one show you have. <laughs> As a, if, if you told me when I started off where we would end up, um, I, I wouldn't have believed you. I remember, in fact, it was the lovely Helen Holden Dye who used to run the art centre at New Milton. Her late husband, Ken, once said to, to us, he said, never forget where you've come from. Mm. And I just thought at the time, that's, yeah, well, I'm not going to forget that. I don't think it was the best piece of advice he could ever give anybody going into the world of show business. And he said, you, you will have a show in London one day. I said, get away, Ken, no way. No way, we were busy touring art centres at the time. And lo and behold, we ended up, after many other uh, musicals and plays, we ended up uh, producing um, with, obviously, other producers. There was, there was a group of us. But I was kind of the hands-on uh, line producer for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at the London yes. Play, which at the time, um, and possibly could still be, the largest uh, musical ever in the West End, and it is still holding the record for the longest running show ever at the London Palladium of three and a half years. That is incredible. Doesn't the car hold an award as well? Wasn't there an award? It's the the most expensive prop (laughs) ever to be built for a musical. Um, And I think it came in at somewhere between 750,000 and (sighs) million pounds. Um, money I can't, I, I couldn't even imagine uh, in the early days. Um, uh, it pales nowadays because everything's so expensive. Um, but it's, it's been a hell of a journey. Sounds like it. So how did you hone your craft? Because would you say that your university days and your teaching days helped you? Or was it, were you learning on the job? Because you're dealing with some huge productions, a lot of people... I'm guessing a lot of egos and lots yeah. of different opinions. I, I, I think that's probably they're probably understatements. I didn't quite know. I can remember when I booked the first tour for Four Four Time. It was a tour of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and I played Charlie Brown. And uh, I can remember I was so nervous and so frightened I wouldn't pick up the phone. If the phone rang, I, I, I made an excuse to get out of the office. I didn't want to talk on the phone. Now you can't get me off. Uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. I talk, I talk for the planet. Um, now I love what I do. And, it's, and it's, it's really all to do, as it is with, with anything and in all walks of life, is to do with confidence. Mm. And I didn't have any in the early days. But if you keep at it, you kind of get used to it 
Um, and now it's sort of second nature. And yes, there was an awful lot of making it up as I went along. And there still is. Anybody that tells you that they know everything about show business, they're lying to you. Absolutely lying to you. We all make it up as we go along. I think that's reassuring. That's going to be reassuring for lots of people because I think you have to wing it in life, don't you, to get by? We're, 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 we're all dropped in it together. <laughs> yes, we're winging it now. <laughs> um, these days, you've got to learn to listen first and learn and, and then comment, I think. Mm, I agree. Was there a time that you fought for a production there was something you felt had something about it it had gravitas but perhaps you were going against the grain well I don't know about going against the grain but um I, I well there, there are two examples uh, one is current and one is back in uh, 2002 uh, which was chitty itself but that started way back uh, ten years before that, I came up with an idea, not, I hasten to add, an original idea, to make the Chitty movie into a stage musical. Now, that wasn't a huge leap of imagination by any stretch, because it was already a stage movie. It uh, was about putting something that was broken back together again and that wasn't just the car that was the family um that we follow uh, the Potts family Potts. who's uh, the kid's mother had died and it was a one you know person family uh, led by in the movie Dick Van Dyke um and it touched the hearts of all of us as kids I think because it was so regularly shown on television since it's released in 1968. So I just thought that could be magical. And I think that's, I think that's at the heart of everything we try to do is that there is something magical. Uh, and I'm not talking about illusions, but there's something that's inspiring and sets the tingles on the back of your neck going. It's got heart, uh, hasn't it, Chitty, as well, it, I oh, think. Enormous heart. I think I think magical and great heart are interchangeable uh, as as elements that you have to have in in any storytelling. Um, so for ten years I wrote to Cubby Broccoli. Um, <gasps> not for ten years, I wrote to Cubby Broccoli for four years. I wrote to a chap called John Parkinson who used to deal with all the licensing at Eon Productions. And I think he had several letters from several other people and producers suggesting it to be the same. And then for some reason, oh, that was right, we got asked to co-produce uh, a, a musical uh, written by Dana Broccoli, who was Cubby's wife. Now, Dana, and Cubby passed away, sadly, in 1996. And Dana and her son, and her daughter, Barbara uh, Broccoli, um, kind of continued to run the Empire, the Bond franchise, yes. uh, the 007 franchise. And of course, we're in charge of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, because of course that storybook was written by Ian Fleming as well uh, for, his, for his son. Because I think his son one day turned around to him and said, Daddy, I think you love James Bond more than you love me. Which inspired him to write Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <sighs> So that's, I think, 
was was the long was one of the longest journeys. It wasn't until ten years later that we we actually had a production and the biggest production that could possibly have been imagined on the stage of one of the greatest theatres uh, in the world, the London Palladium. Mm-hmm. And it uh, sat there for three and a half years and then went on to tour for another five or six years. I think all in all, I was involved with it for about eight years. And then from that, there's been other smaller productions uh, being done since. But uh, I have been asked and have the, the mantle of um, overseeing the licensing uh, across the world on behalf of the Broccoli family. Gosh. Um, the, and and <sighs> from that, uh, I think uh, our association with the Broccoli family, and, and in particular, uh, uh, Barbara, uh, who is the same age as me, give or take um, half a year or so, uh, which she always keeps reminding me about. Uh, mind you, she could because she looks so much younger than I do. We've done a lot of shows uh, together with her brother, Michael Wilson, um, and just had the best time. I've been extraordinarily fortunate and lucky and privileged to be part of some of those productions we've done together, such as Strangers on a Train in the West End, um, that went Lauren. to Broadway, didn't it? Strangers on a Train. I don't. I don't think did it. I think it. Ta- we didn't do the tour. We did the West End production. What did go to Broadway uh, and start and and stayed there for a limited season was probably one of the most exciting times of my life. Um, was Steady Rain. Steady Rain. I with- do beg your pardon. With Daniel no, Craig no. and Hugh Jackman. I know. Who would have thought? I mean, can you imagine a, a young boy that wanted to be a film star when he was a child, ending up working with two of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time in a play? It was just a two-hander play, uh, but of course, <laughs> in keeping with everything that Barbara and Michael do, it was um, it was not cheap and it was so classy and big. I remember the set. Um, was 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 just beautiful and uh, atmospheric um, and large, and the performances from Daniel and from Hugh uh, were just awe-inspiring. Uh, they and such generous actors, um, both on stage and screen. Um, that that was glorious. I mean, the reviews for that were outstanding. So, how do you end up? Getting involved in something like that? Do they approach you? Do you approach them? Do you think, nah, this won't happen? All of the above, actually, <laughs> sure. You, you, have you read my mind before this interview? Um, I was, I, I, we'd done several shows together, uh, Barbara and myself, and uh, we were sat around having, having dinner one night, and she'd found uh, this play, Steady Rain. And we'd read it and I thought it was terrific. I thought it was very atmospheric and uh, potentially commercially very strong if we could cast it right, you know, because you've only got two actors to, you know, to spend the night with uh, in the theatre. And uh, she was kicking around ideas. And of course, the first idea that came to mind was obviously Daniel Craig. Well, that was kind of a shoe in because, you know, she knew because Daniel had already started making uh, you know the the 
Bond movies for her production company. And um, therefore it was matching uh, someone of a similar stature uh, that could hold his own against what was James Bond in my mind. And they were both playing um, Chicago policemen as it happened on stage. Um, so she said to me, I know, why don't we ask Hugh Jack? I said, don't be silly. As you do. I, I spat my wine out at the time. I said, if you get Hugh Jackman, I'll eat my hat. Now, luckily, I didn't wear a hat, so I got off that one. And I can remember getting in a cab back to go to the apartment that I had in London at the time from Barbara's place. And I'm in the cab on my way home. And it was uncanny. I was I was uplifted and excited, but you know, doubtful very much that any of it would happen. And as I drove home in this cab, if I saw one bus side of uh, the DVD release of Quantum of Soul, <laughs> I saw at least half a dozen, followed by at the same time. Every other bus that passed by had uh, Hugh Jackman on in, I think it was Wolverine or, or the, or the Wolverine. Yeah, remember, Wolverine. Being, being released as a movie. And I, oh, that, 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 that's just weird. That's just, and I told by, I said, you'll never, you'll never guess. I said, I just had the most bizarre experience on the way home in the cab. I said, all I saw was Hugh Jackman and <laughs> Daniel Craig whizzing past the windows all the way back home to the apartment. Um, and, and practically, within a couple of days, um, she'd been on to Hugh's agent over here, who I also knew, a, a lovely lady. He then had got the message and consulted with his people in America. And lo and behold, it was happening. That's insane. And that's a- of fairy tales. Would you say that your brain is split between the creative element and then the business side as well? Because you seem to have to be juggling both. I, I, I think most most producers um, would generally spend more time on uh, the administration, the commercial aspects of the show. But I think very much more these days, producers, especially, well, no, I think that's unfair. Probably doesn't matter what age they are. They, if they have an artistic bent, if they have a creative element, um, then they get much more involved. A, a good producer friend of mine, David Pugh, has always, and he presented uh, oh, many, many, many shows, Calendar Girls being, being just one, art, across the world. Uh, He he loves to get involved creatively and artistically, and he has a fantastic eye for it. Barbara and Michael are exactly the same. They are producers, but have enormous input into uh, not only the script uh, that uh, is being created, but if it already exists, the creative elements of the show and of course producers always engage the creative team so you've actually got to have an eye on both aspects I I guess if um, 
if like me, <laughs> you just like to control and, and get involved and get excited about all aspects of production. And does the industry still excite you? Do you still get that feeling ahead of a, of a show, of a production? I, I do. Um, I, I try not to because, uh, you know, it sometimes skewers the, the reality of what, you know, may lie ahead. But I, I, I'm passionate uh, about what we do because especially at the moment when the theatres have been closed down in historical times for a period that has never existed before. We've never ever had theatres closed for this long and indeed at the moment we're reading that they may continue to stay closed uh, until next year. Well that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. Um, I'm, I'm certainly going to be one of those that advocates with putting health and safety first, of course. Um, but we need to get the industry back on its feet. Michael, you mentioned the current state of the pause on the theatre industry. Your show, Sleepless the Musical, was due to <coughs> start preview shows oh. as lockdown happened at the Wembley Troubadour Theatre. You sent home all your cast and crew, didn't you? And now I guess you're, everything's just hanging in the balance for the time being. If you could read some of the pleas and desperation and depression uh, from not only industry people, actors, actresses, creative people, technicians, wanting some sort of light in what is a very, very dark period for us as an industry, but also uh, the general public. People keep going on about mental health, the well-being of, of, and the mental, the good mental health of people around the world and particularly in our country. It, it is so true and it has never been more evident than, than now because I suddenly realised, and I didn't, not as much, I guess. I didn't realise just how important perhaps our jobs can be um, to giving some sort of mental stability, some escape. Health and safety is uppermost in anybody's mind at the moment. But I don't understand, uh, and forgive me if I am being ignorant, but I don't understand how at this time the theatres can remain shut, but passengers are allowed to get on an aluminium tube without any social distancing whatsoever and stay with regurgitated air in that aluminium tube for several hours, and that's okay. And yet we cannot open the theatres unless we social distance. Now, social distancing is really difficult for, for theatres, buildings, because the, the margins are always so tight. Putting a show on, you know, particularly a musical, has got more and more expensive over the years, um, and, and wrongly so. It, we, we need to get a grip on our industry, but that's a whole other programme uh, as regards ticketing and theatre owners and, and how we do things and how we pass the, those costs on to the public, which is not always right. I hasten to it. Yes, it's a very expensive process, but it's it's got out of hand, and I, I'm I'm just anxious and and hope very much that 
as 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 an organization and we 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 for those that produce in in the west end uh, there's a, a society called the society of london theatres salt mm -hmm. uh, to shorten it which represents producers and theatre owners in london and they've been working hand in in glove with equity with back to with the musicians union to find a way forward that is both legal and safe and in line with government policy and guidelines and uh, get the theatres open again so we can get these creative and technical people back to work and start providing a service which, you know, considering what the, what the country, in, in, in every country, has gone through and is continuing to go through, the loss of life, we need that... <laughs> that sense therapy. of community isn't it theatre I think absolutely so that sense of community to, to watch a play on television as I think you and I discussed just mm. the other day um, is one thing but it does not fulfill the emotional feeling that you get when you're surrounded by uh, you know like people uh, watching a story unfold, whether it be a musical or a play or a ballet or a dance show um, or an opera. It's, it's a different experience. It is, it is. And for me, when I'm in the theatre, I'm immersed. M my life is, is paused, if you like. And when I see the performers sweat, I can feel their emotion. You, you know, you're with them, you're going on that journey. And um, it's unlike anything else. Now, there is a model, isn't there, Michael, being used in South Korea at the moment with Phantom of the Opera. It's going to be trialled in London in July. It is. It's being trialled by, by Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, at um, the London Palladium. And I think he's going to try it with a production that was there last year, uh, like a one-off uh, performance of Joseph in the Amazing Technical technical dream coat because it's in store they've got the cast that were rehearsed up and will be fairly quick to be able to reassemble the show we already know the model works because it's happening and has happened since april without incident uh, at the seoul theater in south korea that production is being produced by uh, an american producer called randy buck and I've got a copy of the guidelines. I got a copy and I passed it on to our society and one or two other producers. And we're going to do the same at Sleepers. At the moment, there's nobody in our industry saying that their theatre and their production is going to return anytime soon. And I believe personally that we've got to get back within the realms of safety and, and health uh, being paramount for our, both the audiences and the people that work on the show. But we know that's possible. Therefore, I think we should be doing something about that now. It's not a matter of trialling it. It's a matter of now doing it. We've been talking about this model, but we haven't explained what it is. And that's uh, like a sanitizer machine that kind of fogs out the theatre and lasts for 30 days and temperature checking machines and all elements of hygiene Absolutely. for... Various processes. Now, the, the show, um, uh, Sleepless, which is based on Sleepless in Seattle, the movie, this musical uh, version, which is brand new, it, it has two new British writers, 
um, uh, Robert Scott and Brendan Cull, who wrote the music and the lyrics. And it's the American book based on the uh, screenplay of the movie. Um, it's being trialed uh, later this year, as it happens now, um, at the Troubadour Wembley Park Theatre, as you quite rightly said. The great thing about the Troubadour Wembley Park Theatre, it has a huge number of toilets, all of them very well spaced, all of them, uh, you know, providing what is needed in this current situation. So that's that's one pro plus. The other thing it has is, is an enormous foyer. So people are not crammed in. It has an enormous roof space. So you're not, you know, breathing regurgitated air. It's fresh air that's coming into the building. And it has sufficient seats that if we do have to uh, socially distance, we can do it with some sort of ability to, if not make money, but certainly to get close to breaking even. But that's not the point of what I want to achieve. The point is, is to, to reestablish the industry and to give people back confidence and to get people back to work, quite mm. frankly. You mentioned your upbringing, Michael. What did your family make then of you entering this industry? That and a lot of people think that you need to come from a dynasty of showbiz generations, if you like, you know, to make it. And, and you broke the mould there. <laughs> yeah, well, you could say that <laughs> on many on many levels. <laughs> uh, when I was uh, for a brief time an actor, my mum and dad used to love coming to see the shows and me on stage. I, I don't profess to have been particularly fabulous at it, but they loved to see it. It was their kid on stage, and hopefully getting the lines right and missing the furniture. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, from college or from school to college to going into it as a profession. I know they were disappointed. Uh, at least my mum always says she's no longer with us. My, I lost mm. my mum to dementia a few years ago. I'm sorry. Uh, which was probably one of the most cruelest things to, to watch. My mum was a great advisor in as much that <laughs> despite what I may have thought, she'd always, if I asked her, tell me the truth and it was very blunt and it was never dressed up and it necessarily wasn't always the answer I wanted but I know it was the truth and I wasn't being spun a line and that was very useful they were a little disappointed when I left uh, the acting side of things to become more <laughs> in control as a producer and I can re remember her for the first time ever mentioning it. So, oh, well, I, I miss you being on stage. I said, but mum, I am still on stage. You see the color of those shoes that that girl's wearing there in the chorus? I am responsible for those shoes not being black, but being the same color <laughs> as her frock. I said, that was something I asked to have happen. And I said, you know, the people that created the scenery, the people that do the lighting design. I said, I brought those people together. So what you're watching is part of me on stage. But, you know, with the cooperation and the talents of the individual designers, creative people, actors, 
who then embellish and take it to a whole new level. I just put them together. And uh, if you like, I buy the paint, somebody else puts it on the wall. Amazing, amazing. And <laughs> do you try to surround yourself with a good team of people? Do you, would you say that's important in your line of work to have trustworthy people that will give you their honest opinions and I do I think I'm very loyal both David and I uh you know when we're doing shows whether it be on Broadway or in the West End or provincially we do tend to pick from the same tree not all the time and we like to spice it up on occasion but if if somebody is particularly good we know we're bringing a, a, a family of mm. people together both backstage and on stage and in the pit if it's a musical it allows us to do shorthand because people already know the level uh, and standards that we expect. We don't have to spend a lot of our time nagging that this has got to look this good and mm. uh, this this has got to be of such a standard or they already know all of that. And that makes my job easier, if anything else. You and mentioned the, I, that oh, word family. Tell me, how important is it to get the right people for the right show have the right personalities together so that everybody backstage and then on stage gels? Because I would imagine if you have the wrong setup, it could make working life pretty tricky. If you have a bad apple, you mean? Uh, That's, in, yes. In, in barrel. On occasion, we have. And whether they are, you know, new in the business, you know, in the chorus, all the way up to stars... Uh, that we employ, that have their names above the title, it makes no difference. Their contribution is just as important as each other. And if they do not embrace what they are doing and embrace the people around them, metaphorically speaking, then it, it becomes a less happy experience, potentially. And therefore... We have, uh, uh, without question, had to, to deal with situations like that. And if it's going to upset the majority, then the person or the minority has to go. Mm. And it's, those are tough times because, mm. especially if you're in, if you're in production, um, if, if you're in the beginning of, of things, it, then it's less difficult to, to extricate that person out. But uh, no, on occasion, we, we, we have had to do that. And it always shows on the stage because positive energy always comes across the footlights. Uh, negativity, an audience necessarily won't know what's wrong, but they'll know something is wrong because mm. it's not quite right. It's not quite as as it should be. And they won't be able to spot what it is, but they'll know something's wrong. Therefore, we've got to, we've got to make, it, make it better. Fish them out. You've described yourself a few times as controlling. I'm guessing, though, you must have a lot of resilience because there must have been a number of times where you've had setbacks or, like you mentioned earlier, Chitty took you years to kind of bring to fruition. These shows aren't just an instant... Let's, let's do that show and, and three months later it's on the stage. Would you say that resilience is something 
that you've learned or, or got better at as time's gone yeah. on? Resilience comes from uh, experience uh, and not all of those experiences are positive. Uh, we've had occasion when we've teamed up with uh, a co-producer and that particular co-producer has not done what they've either promised or indeed contracted to do. And we've had to step in uh, on occasion to, to make up that gap. And that impacts uh, on occasion uh, hugely, both emotionally and financially. Uh, and that takes time to recover from those sort of things. And we have had our fair share of things that have gone wrong, as, as everybody does in life, no matter what they do. Life is not perfect. And the sooner that you wake up and smell the coffee, as far as that's concerned, the better. You've just got to make the best of whatever the situation may be. I think you've got to be honest uh, as far as you possibly can. Sometimes we have to keep things secret. We don't need to share that we're on the brink of disaster. We need to be in the background fixing that so-called edge of the brink or brink of the the uh, the mountain uh, that we're about to drop off and then maybe share later because people have their jobs to do and our job is to take away as much of the distractions for the people we employ so that they can do the very best job that they can do. I think you're always judged much more on when things go wrong and how you deal with that than when mm. things are perfect and you've got huge successes. Now we've experienced both and it, I, I can tell you now, it's really difficult <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to do the things that you should do, to yeah. do the right things when the world is falling on top of your head. It's really tough, but that's what being an adult is about. And it's so much easier when you've got a big, fat hit on your hands to be kind, to be generous, to be, you know, happy and smiling and all the rest of it. That, that's easy. That's easy. Um, I think you hit uh, the nail on the head there, actually, with a lot of things about life and society. You hit the nail on the head. You know, when life is going well and everything's good and you have, you know, health and happiness and finances in abundance, it's easier to be a good person, isn't it? And, and to give. Absolutely. And, and so life at the moment is, is, is a prime example of that. It's a little microcosm at the moment. And you look at the way, you look at some of these wonderful stories we've heard about, we've read about, we've, you know, watched on TV or listened to, that people have been incredibly generous and kind and brave and sacrificing I, I just wish I fitted into any of that uh, because you, your heart goes out. That is where we learn. And that's when I say to myself, I've got to be. It, it makes you want to be a better person. Mm. Mm. It does. This is what I mean. There's always a silver lining to every disaster. And I really hope from what's going on at the moment, and we will, like all things, this too will pass. Um, I just hope we take with us uh, at some something that we've learned and can make our world uh, and other people's world uh, much better because of it. 
I agree. I agree. Michael, I'm coming to my last two questions for you now. You'll be relieved to hear so that you can go and enjoy the rest of your gin and tonic in peace in the sun (laughs) before we lose the day. Um, How do you relax? Well, I I have a place. um, I'm very lucky to have been able to to have a place uh, abroad in Spain. And I said (laughs) up until about six or seven years ago, uh, we really didn't have a hobby. Our work was our life. Mm-hmm. And only because it doesn't feel like work. Um, you know, we're, we're very lucky from that point of view. We're, we feel very privileged. I bought a speedboat <gasps> and, and it's called Mama Rose and it's moored down in Spain. And I have but the best time uh, and of course, it's all show business again. <laughs> when we have guests at the villa, we go out on the boat, we go down to Mama Rose, and uh, it's, of course, got a big sound system on it. As we leave uh, the harbour, we go out on a certain theme tune, because I always think ev- every life has got to have its underscore. Okay. So- <laughs> I am that film, so you see, I have lived up to my childhood dream. I have my underscore as I'm driving a Mama Rose out into the Mediterranean with guests, with a fridge filled full of wine and uh, food, and uh, and that's how I relax. That sounds and dreamlike. I, I used to powerboat race when I was a kid, oh. and, and I was second. When I was doing my uh, A-levels and before I went to college, I was the co-pilot uh, on these uh, powerboat races around the coast. It sounds terribly butch for me, I know. And, oh, I didn't uh, I think you were such an adrenaline junkie. I am, I, <laughs> I am. And uh, I, I fell out once and went over the top of the boat behind. This is at some speed. I went over the front of that. And as I fell down the side, the, the, the propeller on the boat behind us scooped the top of my foot away. Um, and it wasn't till I sort of came to the surface and uh, was floating, waving my hands frantically at these boats approached me to let them know I'd fallen overboard. Uh, I always used to wear canvas shoes to give me some grip because I had to move backwards and forwards from the front to the back, depending how calm the water was and how deep the prop had to be in the water to give us more propulsion and speed. And uh, as my two legs floated up uh, to the surface, I noticed I'd lost one of my canvas shoes on my right foot. I thought, oh, well, that's a bugger isn't it uh, and then I thought oh I can see all the bones in my foot oh, I, nice. so, <laughs> so I, I don't know how I got onto this subject now, but that, that, so that started my love of being in a boat okay. and uh, anyway they stitched I went to Hillingdon Hospital I think it was at the time because this was an inshore uh, speed race uh, they were normally offshore I used to uh, water ski in the water ski races around the coast as well. So having a boat now is just pure escape. And whenever we have guests, we always take them out. And of course, they love it because there's something so chilling and stress-free about sitting on the water with the anchor overboard and just putting the world to rights. So that, that's how we relax. How wonderful. You've got sea legs. So what's the underscore then? What what takes you out? Fairies. Um, to, to, to get us... <laughs> oh, no, this is getting silly. <laughs> the current one, to get us... And of course, we're not over there this year because of all the restrictions 
but uh, I will get out there as soon as possible, maybe after we get sleepless open up at Wembley Park, um, and hopefully transfer into the West End next next year, into the Central West End next year. It's the theme to the Star Trek movie, one of the latest Star Trek movies. If you listen to the beginning of it, I could play you it now. <laughs> if you listen to the beginning of it, it's all very under the horizon. It's what well, this drone is bum, 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 bum. And as you're sort of picking up speed, then it, it just explodes. And that's when I normally put the accelerator down and we speed off uh, into the Mediterranean. You'll have to come over. It's all show business. I mean, I can't help myself. Everything I do has got to have a sound factor. It's just so dramatic. I love it. I can just see a movie now of your life. I imagine myself as Chris Pine <laughs> and off we go into, into the sunset oh it sounds amazing and Michael so, just lastly I'd like to ask you who's been the biggest influence on you I, there have been several people I think as, as producers I think it's, it's got to be uh, someone like Cameron McIntosh, who's probably one of the most successful producers in the world, not just in this country. So he was a great, great uh, hero of mine as uh, as I started off. But uh, I, I think probably my dear friend Barbara, as a person, uh, not just only as a producer, but as a person, I've learned a huge amount from she's like our kid sister um she's a a very successful and 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 wealthy lady but she was taught so well i think from her parents particularly uh her father cubby who knew the business so well i i I knew her mother dana uh who was an extraordinary lady and Barbara is a combination of the two of them. And she's just what I would call one of the best human beings I know on the planet. And it's not just because she's able to do so much with the, the, you know, the, the, the power and the wealth that she possesses. It, it comes from the heart. Mm. It, it, um, it comes from, in, from within. And I've learned so much. I would never tell her this. Uh, <laughs> Otherwise, I'd never hear the end of it. <laughs> I'd always have to do it. I was told if I told her that I thought she was some sort of influence. Oh. But she, she treats people with enormous compassion and integrity. And as a woman in what is fundamentally or was fundamentally a man's world, whether it be in movies or whether it be in theatre, she's had to have enormous strength. But coupled with that strength uh, has been uh, huge generosity and compassion um, that comes from the heart. I think she, she has got to be one of my biggest heroes. That was theatre producer Michael Rose. And when Sleepless the Musical is up and running, there will be a free performance for NHS staff. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.